0: I think we all meet people throughout our lives that kind of change our paths, you know. They change things a little bit or, or give you that little bit of hope that you could do this. And even just opening this business was a big deal for me, you know, just...
1: That was Jamie Camp on this week's episode of the People of Veterinary Medicine podcast. The People of Veterinary Medicine brought to you by LUCA Veterinary Data Security. Greetings DVMs, practice managers, vet techs, support staff, veterinary consultants, and podcast enthusiasts. Welcome or welcome back. In this week's episode, we are talking with Jamie Camp, CVPM for a hospital out in the Tennessee area. What I love about this episode with Jamie is that we are we started talking about the concept of how there's such high attrition rate in the veterinary space, especially among uh, the support staff, practice managers, vet techs. And I was curious how she has been able to stay in the industry so long and what were some of the key factors that have kept her in the industry. And that eventually led us into this idea of the people problem, right? Which it always comes back to the people. I mean, if, if this project isn't, isn't, testimony to the importance of people. I don't know what is, but it just got really interesting as we talk a lot about the idea of the abundance versus scarcity mindset. Uh, if you haven't read Carol Dweck's book, uh, growth mindset, I think is what it's called. If you search Carol Dweck, uh, you'll see the book, uh, we We get in a lot into that that concept and how it has affected our lives in previous work environments and what we're how we're trying to apply the the abundance mindset today. And then we also get into a concept which is um, I think important in veterinary medicine, but just important as to society as a whole, and the fact that we really can't have tough conversations anymore. We have gotten to a point now where we look at people outside of our silo as bad people with bad ideas rather than good people with bad ideas. And I think the importance of that is is that if we look at people with as good people with bad ideas, that opens the door to have conversations to try to say like, hey, I don't agree with you because of X. And then we can really hash this out. But if we understand that they're good people, if we come in with that premise, it allows us to walk away and still be friends and to kind of hug it out. But to, to hash out some of these problems, and I feel that 2020 has really kind of exposed the light of the, the inability of a lot of us, not only in the veterinary practice, but just as society as a whole, to not be able to have these hard conversations, and then to be able to walk away from it, either coming out, changing our maybe changing our opinions, staying on, staying in the opinion that we have, or maybe just walking away, realizing now we disagree on the specific point. But I think it's something that's really really important, and I feel like we that Jamie has a lot of insight in this, and we could have talked about it forever. But yeah, so I think you'll really enjoy this episode because there's just a lot of meat there about a lot of the things that are going on, not only in the vet practice, but in society as a whole, when it comes to managing people and, and being in a leadership position and what that really means and what we have learned from that. So with that being said, sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Are you at, are you at the hospital today or are you at home?
0: I'm at the hospital, which is, gotcha. has been fun. I just got back from a little uh, vacation and have been bombarded this morning. Oh, so. nice. Where did you Where did you go? Um, I decided to go to Savannah, Georgia. I found a little place in between Tybee Island and Savannah, downtown Savannah. Okay, um, nice. Just to, to get away for a minute. So, yeah that
1: sounds great yeah yeah i've never you know i've been through the atlanta airport but that's been about the extent of my travels within uh the, the state of georgia um yeah I don't like, to get, like to get down there at some point there's quite a few places in that area like I, uh, my my sister-in-law was just somewhere in tennessee that looked absolutely fabulous it was like yeah looked like it was in the is it the apple appalachian or mm-hmm. appalachian mountains that? Yeah, it's through probably tennessee.
0: like pigeon forge or uh um gatlinburg
1: Okay. Yeah. Oh, I don't there's mountains that on either
0: side. Knoxville okay. has mountains too. So. Okay.
1: Yeah. Um, it probably was close to Knoxville. I think that's where she flew into. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I love Tennessee and Savannah was beautiful, but I just, I don't know. I just like the mountains of Tennessee. Yeah. So yeah, I'll, I gotcha. I'll, I'll always end up back here. <laughs>
1: so, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Well, great. Well, um, the way I always like to start is if you can kind of uh, just tell me a little bit about, about your background and, how you got involved in veterinary medicine, what led you to the path that you're currently on?
0: Sure. Um, I actually started when I was 17. I got offered a position just to, to help and assist the, the technicians and the nurses. Um, and then I worked my way up. So I've been in six different practices in the last 15 years. Um, I realized early on, I was on probably my third clinic and I was working with brilliant veterinarians. And then I realized they knew medicine and they didn't know how to manage a practice. We had really high turnover, inventory wasn't managed well. Um, the doctors avoided conflict like the, pe- the plague, <laughs> like they just ran away from it. So I decided then to switch my major. I was in college for psychology and I changed it to business management and marketing. And then I have taken that a step further and I got my CVPM, it's a Certified Veterinary Practice Manager um, certification. And I'm currently working on a HR certification that's not veterinary specific. Um, But I just, I saw the need for it in the market and I saw particularly in Tennessee, I've noticed it being a little bit different in other states but I feel like the bar needs to be raised in veterinary medicine whether that be, you know, aha accreditation, fear-free status. Um, I just feel like there's so much room for improvement and there's so many veterinarians that hesitate or refuse to embrace change or anticipate future that they just wanna stay in their little bubble doing what they've always done. Um, So I'm the executive director of Blue Oasis Pet Hospital in Mount Juliet, Tennessee. Earlier or the first of this year, I started my own consulting business called veterinary practice consulting. Um, It all kind of started with me helping out a veterinarian that's a friend of mine, open her own practice. And I was like, well, I should do more of this because I I enjoyed helping her and I enjoyed helping her set things up properly. Um, So I opened the business, uh, did my little LLC, and I've done a few speaking engagements. I've helped with a few different projects with different practices so far. And I just, I'm liking helping people and raising that bar. I just, I feel like we have so much that, that we could do to improve the industry. And I wanna be one of those people to kind of push it along.
1: So you, you said something there that one of the things that you thought would be like, aha accreditation. And what's in, what I find interesting about about that and this is where i would like to get you get a little bit deeper is i have a friend that uh he bought a prat you know he was an associate he bought a practice and he was like well i thought if i just put the uh, aha accredited symbol up there all my customers would you know all the people would flock to me and you know we would we'd be busier than we could ever be and he's like and then i realized we were going bankrupt and there's a whole bunch of other things that we got into as to why that was happening but it wasn't i had no i mean having had pets my whole life growing up and then having my two dogs before I really got heavily involved in in the vet industry where I was taking care of them you know myself I had no idea what aha accreditation meant Mm -hmm. so I could have walked in and I could have walked by and saw that sticker but it didn't really mean anything to me as a consumer so when you say you know you know, one of the ways that we can raise the bar is like through AHA, AHA accreditation. Mm-hmm. Maybe elaborate on that. What is your thought sure. behind actually? How what kind of impact that has? And this is again, I love the AHA organization. I'm not trying to discredit them anyway. Mm-hmm. In any way, I have just seen that in the industry it is seen as a very high standard. But I'm not sure that correlates with with the underlying consumer right i'm not sure Correct. the consumer knows what aha is and what's involved in and maybe that's a shortcoming of aha's marketing position they're they're not educating the end consumer of the importance of what it is to, mm-hmm. to be aha accredited um so yeah so maybe you can
0: oh yes definitely and i i've talked to different doctors that decided not to be accredited just because of the cost of it and and that sort of thing and it doesn't relate to the consumer very well at all um most consumers feel like there are some set of standards that veterinary hospitals have to adhere to. They don't realize that only, I think the last statistic I saw was 16% of hospitals were actually AHA accredited. So without that, there's not any real standards set. You have you know, your oath that the doctors take when they, vet, they graduate vet school, but there's not a standard of care set. So AHA has over 900 standards that they, it, it, we have to adhere to as a hospital to be an aha accredited hospital. I think that helps in just raising the bar in the quality of medicine and the quality of care. They update them frequently. Um, but it is not something that is seen by the customers as something to look for. And, you know, I, I've thought about that as well. Like I don't know if it's AHA's side of it not educating well, or if it's the the clinics themselves, they don't have enough buy-in to really have it that widely known because only 16% of hospitals are accredited. Um, I just feel like even if they're not accredited, they should have a set standard and protocols and hold themselves to a higher standard than just your oath that you take out of that school. Um, but it is pricey and it's, it's a process for sure. We've actually, through my own experience, the hospital, I'm, I'm the director of now, we've gotten more foot traffic for being fear-free than AHA ever did. Just because people understand fear-free, they understand what that means. They don't understand what AHA means. So it's interesting to me that AHA has been around for so long. Fear-free just started doing the clinic accreditation process and there's been much more foot traffic with fear-free than, than AHA. But I feel like there's so many hospitals that don't have set protocols and standards that need them. And just to have the whole team on the same page and practice quality medicine, and that's something that the industry needs to push for. Um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be tied to AHA, even though that's an excellent resource because they do set the standards. Them and yeah. They may bet- both.
1: I bet Ruth would love to hear that, that you're getting more foot traffic off of Fear Free than (laughs) the the AHA Accreditation. Oh, yeah. She she would love to hear that. Um, You know, what is interesting and kind of back to this idea of the, the idea that, you know, as I look at it as a consumer, you made the point that the general consumer assumes that there's a certain level of there's a certain standard of care that's being practiced within a hospital, which I think, you know, looking from a legal standpoint, there is, right? I mean, if it it wasn't meeting a a certain level, the doctor would face medical board uh, charges and could lose his or her license and there could be a whole host of problems there. Mm -hmm. However, I have realized um, having now, you know, had, I lost one dog earlier this year to a, you know, a cancer battle, but having, being tied very being very tied into the industry and having access to so many different veterinary professionals, uh, I clearly have now seen the difference mm-hmm. in the in the types of medicine that are practiced. But again, 12 years up to that, I really had no clue. Right. You know, you, as a consumer, and if you're not really tied in the, in, in the industry, I would, I'm just making, this is an end of one, right? This is an antidote. This is just my own mm-hmm. personal experience. But I would be interested to see Or maybe you could elaborate. Having worked at, would you say, six different hospitals, Mm -hmm. what that is like, you know? Because I have seen it now, you know, and and they're now being involved in the industry, and I can clearly see that. But as a general consumer, I had no idea, and I was kind of like, well, if we go to this one doctor and they tell us one thing, that's just the way it is. I never really thought about the second opinion or asking Mm -hmm. other people's advice and that sort of thing. So um, maybe you can elaborate on that more. I mean, what has been your experience? as far as maybe the disconnect or maybe it's just my experience when it comes to different levels of of medicine that's being practiced at a a hospital. Sure.
0: It's, it's a huge spectrum. I find that a lot of doctors practice, gosh, I've, I've worked with so many doctors I can't even count and they all do things differently. And some of the practices that I have been at weren't, I mean, they didn't have iv pumps they didn't have monitoring and anesthesia like a lot of these things that you would think would be standard that we would have being you know in just being in the 2000s <laughs> you know just having having those things um but i find that it's it's pretty limited based on the owner or the leaders of the hospital, if they're trying to, to be more cost effective and they don't want to purchase new equipment and they don't want to do new things, um, there's a lot of times veterinarians aren't researching progressive treatments or not changing how they're doing things based on the science that's coming out about it. Um, so it's, it's just a huge range and it really all depends on the leaders in the hospital because it comes top down. So if you have an owner that doesn't let you do anything as a manager, I, and I've been in that situation too, where I'm like, these things could dramatically change our patient care or help us do these things differently, but it costs money on the front end and they didn't want to do it. So And some of them just like, I call it old school medicine. I think that's a a pretty standard term that we use in the industry sometimes. But um, there's a lot that are kind of just fixated in old school medicine and they aren't interested in progressing or learning anything new. A good example of that um, in in my career being in 15 years is seeing, you know, online pharmacies hit the market that was a huge change. And I've worked at so many practices that have refused to fill any online prescriptions whatsoever. And I was like, well, all you're really going to do is make the client angry. And then they don't think about the cost associated with having that much inventory in the hospital either, like the management side of that, of the overhead. So it's like, well, why not try to get ahead of it? Why not try to have our own online pharmacy? You know, why are we making the clients angry by, refusing prescriptions from online pharmacies. So I've seen that as a trend too. That's that's a good example of different owners and different doctors approaching things a little differently. Um, the practice I'm at now, the doctors are extremely progressive. And I love that about them. If there's new research that comes out that a medication doesn't work like we thought it, it did, or it doesn't work at all, like we stop prescribing it, we do something different. We're not stuck on practicing a certain way. We want what's best for our patients Um, and I think a lot of clinics too I've been in corporate medicine as well so it kind of goes with both of them in private practice Um, it's not always about your your dollar you know if you practice good medicine the money will come with that and I think so many times practices practice owners managers focus on just that dollar amount you know how much can we bring in with grooming with boarding with pharmacy with these with surgery and they don't look at the quality of patient care being its own kind of revenue center. It really is. You'll get those more high-end clients that wanna do you know, the best medicine, but are willing to pay for it. The people that we used to send to UT before there were specialists in Nashville. Um, but it's there's just a huge spectrum there. And I think that's where AHA and AVMA kind of kick in for me is, is just having those standards. And, you know, aside from like you had mentioned the malpractice, that's really all you have to worry about. The hospitals don't have to keep up a certain standard beyond just what the health department or um, your government agencies with radiology and such. There's there's no other standard of care for, for pets. Um, other, I mean, AHA sets that bar and that's what we look at, but I do wish it was more widely known what you know that means and what kind of medicine you're getting. And I also feel like the way we practice can change a little bit too, because when you take your child to the pediatrician, they don't take them in the back and you hear your kid screaming and they bring them back to you. I think there should be more transparency in the industry. And that gives owners more perceived value of what they're paying for too. If they're here and they watch a dental procedure, and they can see the radiographs as they happen. They can see extractions that need to be done. They get, they get why that dental costs that much instead of dropping them off and thinking, oh, they got their teeth brushed. Why was it $450 for a teeth brush? <laughs> <You know? laughs> and I think we could change a lot in the industry to help with that perceived value of quality of medicine as well, but it has to happen from top down. It has to be the owner and the leaders in the hospital top-down, because if they don't believe in those, that those things are important, just like the clinics I've talked to that are not really for fear-free at all because they think it takes too much time, you're not going to get anywhere with that if the owner and the leaders aren't pushing it forward, and then you have to get everybody on board, the whole team. It's not any one person. So to, you know, long-windedly answer your question. I, I've I've been on both ends of the spectrum of it. And there's still a lot of people practicing old school medicine that we, we can improve that, you know, we could do better.
1: Yeah. You know, you said so many different things that I kind of just want to reemphasize that I completely agree with. You know, the first thing that you said is, you know, like when you go to the pediatrician, they don't take your child to the back. Mm-hmm. And now having you know, right before WVC this year, I lost uh, my first dog, the first dog I've ever had to put down. And that was a really tough situation to go through. And looking back on it, like Cash was in the back for a long time, you know, Mm -hmm. and you already know that he's sick. He doesn't like being at the vet. He was in the back for a long time. Mm And um, having worked now and, and talked, you know, with some at-home euthanasia services like dr kathy cooney uh Mm -hmm. uh, dr mary who runs lap of love and uh h howells who is running a service another service here locally looking back on it it's like now with our other dog that's getting old i definitely would do the at-home euthanasia far more you know before i did it at a hospital because i look back at that and i'm like yeah i mean uh i just had a lot of regret right i mean it's just Mm -hmm. now the last minutes of his life and he spent 45 minutes in the back of a vet hospital, um, sick. And yeah, it just makes me re-question the whole thing. And, um, I think, you know, Kathy Cooney talks about this a lot about, uh, you know, changing that process in mm-hmm. the hospital and, um, realize realizing those things, you know, I interviewed, uh, Dr. Mary Goins lab 11. She talked about that, you know, her big thing is the education and, uh, on the whole euthanasia side. And I'm getting into a little bit of oh, a <laughs> side, so I'll stop there, but yeah, I I mean, I really I as a consumer I can really resonate with that. Um, mm-hmm. you know the other thing that you talked about was you know if you do it right the money will come and I think you also may, and then you also mentioned there's a lot of owners that if it costs money they don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. And I mean you're spree- you're you're preaching to the choir when you when you tell me that, you know, because I realize that I've realized that most veterinarians don't realize that they have any data that's of any value, and they don't think that there's a target on their back. But that's because they don't realize how you know how the cybersecurity world works. They don't understand really how technology works, and so really just puts a big puts them in the crosshairs. But they're like, ah, oh, I don't have. Why would anybody want to steal my data? And why mm-hmm. would anybody want to attack my little hospital in Tennessee, right? Yeah. And then it's like, and so my soapbox has been, you know, well, at least if I can help educate you then i've done my job whether you work with somebody else or you work with um, me and i help you then i've done my job and i've always kind of held that as long as you do it right which is help educating that you know veterinary practices really do have data then the rest will come and i'm i'm a testament to that and uh i think i think you're 100 right that a lot more practices would kind of benefit from that so Mm -hmm. one other thing that i would love for you to talk uh, talk about is there's been this you know you started out as an assistant and then what we've seen in the industry is that there's this five-year attrition rate in that mm-hmm. they don't just, you know, most staff members don't just leave the hospital. And in this case, specifically, we have data around the vet tech. They don't just leave the hospital to go work somewhere else. They actually leave the industry. Mm-hmm. So how is it that you've been able to stay in the industry so long and kind of had have stayed motivated to make change um, and haven't looked for areas of opportunity elsewhere?
0: Sure, that's a great question. Um, and i've I've seen it happen so many times in my 15 years just wonderful technicians that get out of the industry because it is so hard it's just it's it's a very difficult job to do um, it's typically underappreciated it's undervalued um, there's so many things that it's so complicated because you're when you're a nurse you're not or a technician you're not just one thing you're you're the dental assistant you're you know, the phlebotomist, you're the anesthesia monitor, you know, you're everything. And, um, and it does, compassion fatigue is real. You get into this, this point too where you bond with your patients and when it comes time for euthanasia or to let them go, we feel that too. And it's just such a hard industry to be, be in. Um, my, I just kept building on my skills. Cause I, Whenever I was younger, I didn't think, oh, I'm gonna be in veterinary medicine. Like that wasn't, I had this job opportunity. I took it, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed educating clients and helping the pet. And then I saw these little needs in the industry. So I just kept building on it. If I hadn't have probably expanded on that, then I probably would have left the industry at some point. Um, but I, I feel like I could I could help other people and that's that's everyone's drive in veterinary medicine anyway we want to help and you know you have this whole industry with with people that just even having doctors value their time and pay like charge for their time it's, that's your expertise you know that's they undervalue themselves as well so it kind of has a cascading effect but i just feel like we could do so much more in veterinary medicine and i want to help as many practice owners as i can I know even even corporate medicine helped those, you know, those clinics as well. Because what's happening that I'm seeing now is private practices are, are getting fewer and fewer and because corporate medicine comes in and no private person can buy a practice that way, you know, and they're retiring, so they're selling out to corporate and it's the the industry shifting to that. I would love to keep private practice. I would love to keep it. And preserve it Um, but that all kind of depends on you know the economy and how everything's going and and veterinarians retiring but I just stay motivated because I I do want to help those practice owners understand their business you know it's their baby it's it's theirs and they have no idea how to do any of HR stuff or financial things bookkeeping Um, they they don't even they weren't trained on that you know they went to school for medicine they didn't go to school for business so that's where where i just keep my motivation and want to just help people that way um because it is it is a really hard job to do
1: yeah i would just i had interviewed uh dr jan bellows who is like a board certified dental specialist he does a mm-hmm. um he's kind of like he seems like he's the go-to guy for anything dental in, in the in the in the vet space and what was interesting is is we talked about his lead up to becoming a dental specialist and from away from a general practitioner, it was a human dentist that actually Mm -hmm. kind of took him under his wing that allowed him to kind of get interested in this and how to, how to, uh, because at the time, uh, you know, there, it wasn't, you couldn't become a board certified dental specialist. Mm -hmm. It really wasn't a thing. What I find interesting about that is that there was somebody who was willing to kind of take, him under his wing to kind of help him grow and further his career. And I, and I can speak personally that, that if it hadn't been for a number of people in my life, in my career, I wouldn't be where I'm at today. So is there anybody in your life that has kind of helped you along the way in the veterinary space that has really helped keep you motivated?
0: Oh, most definitely. Um, a lot of the doctors that I've worked with have, have really pushed me and, and particularly um, the owner of Blue Oasis that I'm the director at she really gave me just full lead. She's like, you just, you do what you need to do. We'll work on this together. And um, she encouraged me to get my CVPM as well. I was I was actually researching to do my MBA. And then I was like, well, that CVPM seems more applicable to what I do. Cause you know, we hire CPAs and bookkeepers. So I don't really need an MBA for that, um, but just those doctors along the way that have really mentored the ones that want you to move forward and, and empower you to move forward. And that's, that's how I see my team as well. And how I want others to see their team is if you give people that empowerment to be like, if you're, if your passion is diabetes and you want this special certification and diabetic management, you go do that, you know, we'll pay for it and they take the lead on it and it, it makes them feel more fulfilled, um, particularly with, I know we always say millennials, like it's a bad word. It's not a bad word. Um, but the statistics show that it's more about that job satisfaction, that work-life balance, um, other things outside of pay that a lot of people focus on. And a lot of veterinarians that have been in the industry a long time, just focus on pay and don't offer other benefits. And they don't, they don't have that, Knowledge of of what people are looking for now. Um, But I think job enrichment and having more work-life balance, like people, that's what they look for. And you have a happier team and you have a team that's willing to help each other more. You have a team that's willing to go above and beyond for the clients because they're not dissatisfied with their jobs. So it's been doctors that have pushed me that way you know, just to, to empower me. Yeah, you could do that. You could totally do that. I was like, this sounds crazy. They're like, no, you can, you can do that. And I'm like, okay. So um, just, yeah. And some of the technicians I worked with have been brilliant as well in, in that regard and just encouraging, you know, I think we all meet people throughout our lives that kind of change our paths. You know, they change things a little bit or, or give you that little bit of hope that, you could do this. And even just opening this business was a big deal for me, you know, just having that and knowing that I now have this title that I can go help someone else. And then it gives me more confidence to go reach out to practices that need help. Um, So a a lot of people, but, but the doctors for sure, the doctors that are more progressive, the doctors that want to see everyone succeed, you know, have been the ones that have pushed me along the most and kept me in the industry.
1: Yeah, what is uh, what is interesting is you talk about this millennial issue. And what's interesting is, you know, based on my, I forget am I, what is the generation before generation X or generation mm-hmm. Y or something, I don't know what they are. But yeah. to, you know, where I was born, like I'm in this gray area where it's like, I'm not really one, I'm not really <laughs> yeah. that one, you know. Mm-hmm. But if I look at it from my own perspective and trying to understand the millennial position, I think it's, you know, for years, I grew up watching my dad who worked in in the trades, who was a plumber and this idea that you were, I'm gonna make a statement here that maybe is a little bit controversial, but it's something I believe in. I think we were sold this false idea that, you know, you go to college, you get a good, you get a degree and then you, um, you get a good job and then you work really hard and then you can have some fun when you're hopefully that you'll be healthy enough to live, you know, well into your eighties and then Mm -hmm. kind of enjoy your life for for 15, 20 years. And to even throw another interesting wrench in that, you know, if we look at the sad diet, the standard American diet, a lot of people aren't even living to 60, right? Because the the, because of health, you know, heart conditions and all this stuff, because our diet is so terrible. And, um, something else I'm very just very interested in but I see so I think you know I watch people like myself that you know I have two degrees that I spent a shit ton of money on and mm-hmm. not once has anybody asked me for my diploma you know yeah. what I mean and it, like yeah. you work really hard for those things and they're like and they've never once said like hey can I see that piece of paper you got printed with the, the dean's signature <laughs> on it to prove that you know you did graduate law school and it's like I mean I guess yeah I mean I had to send that stuff over when I sat for the, the bar exam but uh, I have Mm -hmm. never been asked for it. And so for me, I think it's just more of a position of, it was like, we watched this whole generation get sold this false narrative and this false idea. And then we realized that there's just so much more to life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my, I've always had this personal motto for a long time as I've been going through my career, which is like, you know, hashtag start living for Monday because Mm -hmm. so many people dread Monday and it's like, that means you dread, you know, if we look at it just on a week to week basis, you're, you're dreading like 80% of your week. And then you're living for pretty much Friday evening, Saturday day. And then you probably might dread Sunday because it's the last day and you have to prep for Monday. And so it's just this terrible condition. And I think millennials have said, no, like there's mm-hmm. got to be far more to life than just grinding yourself away, right. hoping that you're healthy enough to live for the next 15 to 20 years.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. And I a hundred percent agree. I, um, my late husband was actually a philosophy major. So we had a lot of discussions, but um, it, it reminded me a lot of Alan Watts. Um, he was a professor that he's got some great things if you watch his lectures on YouTube um, about just that that false success, you know? And I think with mine and your your generation, we're in the same boat as being in that gray zone where it was almost, okay, we're at a point where high school diplomas don't really matter. Anymore, So we have to take the next step to do anything with our lives and then we'll be successful if we get this piece of paper. And I just, I call it my $50,000 piece of paper that's on the wall because that's what it is. <laughs> it's a $50,000 piece of paper. And, you know, I, I, completely agree with that. And I, I feel like we, we should live to, to do more than just to a lack of, of quoting fight club, but um, we work Our whole lives to make money to buy crap that we don't need (laughs) and then we die like that's that's the process and and i kind of even though it's looked negatively on for millennials retaliating against that that whole american dream that we were sold um, i feel like it's a needed change it's it's people to realize that you're not going to live forever you need to do things you enjoy you need to do things that make you happy they give you that fulfillment and take risks because there's no there's no success in not taking risks. You have to take those risks to be successful in whatever you do. And you might fail, you know, but that's that's fine too. That's part of the learning process, you know. So I, I'm right there with you completely on that. I I feel like there there's a lot more to life and I'm I'm happy to see rebellion. I guess, against the American dream because it it was, it was a lie. It, you
1: know, it was a lie. Yeah. And what's interesting and Josh, because I know you're listening, you made it into another episode, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. one of the big learning experiences I got from my buddy, Josh was, and is that, you know, you don't always have to like, you're, your day-to-day work, or the area of work that you're in, doesn't necessarily have to be like your passion, right? Mm-hmm. But you can find value in things that excite you in that work, right? So there, he's kind of like, "There's well, there's two ways to look at you. You can either do something you're really passionate about and and figure that out, or you can find passion and and mm-hmm. value in the work that you do." And for me, I realized that I had this unique skill set, um, but I also what was important for me is that what what i realized it wasn't necessarily the wrenching of the tech stuff, right? Like I don't necessarily love getting in and, and implementing new security suites and reviewing the log files and all this stuff, but there are people around me who do, right? Like they really mm-hmm. find a lot of enjoyment in that. What I enjoy is the creativity of seeing what what is happening in the world and what's happening in that landscape and how do we find problems to solve those, working with business owners to protect them in this creative problem solving, and then have people who enjoy doing the wrenching, let them mm-hmm. do the wrenching work, right? and it's allowing yourself to be okay to say that okay i may not you know in this in you know use it again the tech space you know you may think that you have to be a technical person that sits there and codes all day and that's the only way you can Mm -hmm. be successful and be happy and it's like no you if you're like me who is a a bigger thinker and likes to solve problems Mm -hmm. and be creative there is an avenue for you and you just then help to supply the people that Mm -hmm. like to do the technical stuff their work Um, so for you how is it it, and again I could be making assumptions but based on what you've told me for you there seems to be this underlying drive and passion in you to see change and growth Um, am I wrong in that or what what, has for you has it been in the space (laughs) that has kind of continued to allow you to drive forward
0: sure I I completely agree with everything you just said because if I hadn't have gone the management route and saw that niche that, that I wanted to be in, then I probably wouldn't be in veterinary medicine. And it is, there's, and we're we're different levels. I'm a person that does not like to be stagnant. If I feel like I hit a ceiling and I'm not growing, I get real anxious and I have to change something. So I constantly have to be spreading myself too thin. (laughs) Um, but there are people, you know, I have some of my best, um, Best technicians I worked with, or nurses, or or doctors, are, are content being at different levels, like you were talking about. And some of them just enjoy doing this same day-to-day thing every day, and they're they're happy with that, and they find joy in that. And I think it's important to know where you stand with it. And if you are a bigger problem solver and a thinker, I'm the same way. Like I want to I want to solve these big issues in the industry can i do it alone absolutely not <laughs> you know i have to have a whole whole bunch of people um and i recently joined uh vet partners which i was excited about too so i can meet and network with more people that are are better versed at things that i'm not as good at so if i have a client that needs help with particularly one area i'm not real confident in is valuation for sale of practices And acquisitions, Um, but I met somebody about partners that that's what they focus on. So I'll let them handle that and I'll focus on fixing their HR or their standard protocols or whatever I need to do. Um, But definitely, I, I, I feel like we should network and help each other. Like we're, we're in this all together and your your tech world is all together. And it's probably like the veterinary industry where you run into the same people again and again, which is always interesting years later. Um, but I feel like we should let our guards down and recognize our strengths and our weaknesses and recognize somebody else's strengths and weaknesses to see how can we make this better? You know, how can we help this client or do this better? Um so definitely, I'm i right there with you. I, I have to continually be doing something else, or I'm I'm not content. <laughs> so,
1: yeah. One thing that I, it, as you were as you were talking about that, that you know, you are talking about this concept of something that I always tell everybody, and then I I live by. Um, you know, I was recently having a conversation with a, a bigger a bigger group, um, a buying group, and you know, and I we we're, we were you know we were talking about structuring a deal and, and what that looks like. And for me, I'm like, you know, I don't have any problem being transparent uh, because rising tides rise all ships, you know? And that was kind of something mm-hmm. that you are talking about. Like we should, if we all help each other, you know, the, the tide rises and it rises all ships together, which I think, which is, I find interesting. And I, I feel like it's such a rare mindset. Um, mm-hmm. I've had a, you know, I had a coffee business and a coffee venture a while ago because I love specialty coffee and my business partner then had very much a scarcity mentality right it was Mm -hmm. like anybody that opened up in the market um it was immediate competition and you know how can we take them down how can we you know and it and it was that mindset that I was like okay i have to cut my losses here and move on because that's just not the way i work and that's not the way i do business and in the same thing in my technology career um, I've worked with so many business owners where they have this this absolute scarcity mindset, and mm-hmm. any time that somebody steps into their world or even becomes maybe consider slightly considerably considered mm-hmm. competition, it's an immediate threat. Mm-hmm. How do we take them out? How do we how do we make sure we can make sure that everybody knows they're losers, right? And right. we're the best and I've always hated that and mm-hmm. i've hated that mindset because for me i'm like um you know from a theological standpoint it's like you know uh he, you know it's like if somebody asks you to to carry their you know to to carry their their tools you know mile go two miles and mm-hmm. so there's this idea of really kind of working with the people and you know turning the other cheek and this sort of thing from mm-hmm. an from an actual enemy standpoint but that aside i don't think that most people are enemies i think that really there's so much that we can learn from the people that are in our space and we all have customers that are going to be really unique to us and what we do that are really where again this idea that rising tides rise all ships where the best thing i could do is to tell somebody you know what i don't think we're the right fit but i know somebody else who might help you because me just referring them to somebody that's really going to help them if they hear of some you know at some point, you know, just thinking about it monetarily, they might be like, you know what, I did talk with this one technology guy, we weren't the right fit, but he might be the right fit for you, you know? And it's just just better for everybody. And so with you kind of doing your own, where I'm getting with this really long-winded question, is that, you know, you're kind of doing your own independent consulting, and before we had before this call we had another call and you had mentioned that you know you, the owner that you work with now is okay with it and mm-hmm. I, I would love for you to elaborate on the idea of the owner that you're working with now being okay with you helping other practices because sure. for a lot of people like the examples i get given that would be seen as a threat right like they hire definitely. jamie you know i hire jamie to, to help me get better not to help my competition get better right so maybe elaborate on that a little bit
0: definitely i i that's, this is a great topic. Can I get excited? Um I feel like, like you were talking about with, it's the same in veterinary medicine. There's a place for vaccine clinics. You know, there's a place for, you know, your, your vet meds, your VCAs, and then you have your specialists. Like there's a whole spectrum of, of different types of services. And um the clinic that I'm in now, we, whenever we were opening the, the, the owner was told by multiple people like, you're crazy for opening a practice here because there's so much competition right here. And there's 11 practices within a five mile radius of here. And my brain goes to how can we differentiate ourselves? I could still refer somebody down the road to a vaccine clinic that's, you know, if they they don't want a fear-free experience, like if they get frustrated with us for, you know, sending them home with medications to come back later for a visit to make that visit easier. If they want us to hold their pet down and get it done, as it were, there's other practices that can do that, you know, but we're, we're not it because this is what we do. This is our culture. This is, is what we find as being important. Um, so there's, there's that huge spectrum. And I, I think that there's room for all of those different types of practices as well. Um, but the owner here, and she's, she's always been very encouraging of, of me to do things like that. Um, she's not worried about me helping competition. And I try to be mindful of just not helping, you know, a certain radius. Cause even with veterinarians, they usually have to, to sign a contract that says they can't get a job 12 months after being here within however many miles. Um, so I, I try to be mindful of that. So most of the practices that I do help are beyond, you know, 10 miles of here um, or they're for companies to help speaking engagements or, or different things. Um, but she's never been worried about me trying to take our culture away. Cause I, I know this is blue oasis culture, you know, this is what we've worked really hard for. So she's, she, has faith in me for that as well. And then I customize everything. So if I'm with a doctor that, you know, has no interest in say having nice lab equipment, you know, I can work around different things and what they need for their practice or what they need to get their team cohesive or, you know, whatever area they need help in. Um, I can customize to what their culture is and what their vision is, cause that's where it all comes from is their culture and their vision. But differentiation is is so important in veterinary medicine and in all industries really, you have to offer something a little bit different than the people that are immediately around you. So you have to think about that and what can you do you know, to make that different. So we have a whole different experience here for our clients than than I've had at the other practices I've been at. Um, but we, we've we structured it all that way, you know. So it's, she's very, she's she's been wonderful. She's been very wonderful to encourage me to do different things. I can throw ideas off, of, you know, back and forth. And she has her own little gigs that she does on the side too. So we just kind of have that understanding not to cross certain boundaries. But I do feel like, I should be able to call the clinic down the road if I need help with something, or if I am completely booked up and somebody needs to be seen. I I like having relationships with clinics that are close by where I can confidently refer someone there knowing they're going to get a a high quality care. Um, So that's another mind frame in the industry that I would like to break down is that whole cutthroat kind of, these are my clients and I'm going to keep them here. You know, it's like, no, we need to really think about what's best for the pet and be advocates for the pet and help to see where the owner stands with this and have, have them go where they need to go to have the best care. And we, we send out to specialists quite often as well. If there's cases that are, that need more attention or need um, 24 hour care and we're not open 24 hours, we refer them to be a at the ER or the specialty practices. And I've worked with a lot of clinics that they don't want to do that because they want to keep all that revenue center. They, they want to keep that revenue in house. I'm like, but there's nobody here overnight. So that's not what's best for the pet. So send them somewhere where there's somebody in and somebody's going to be there to watch them all night. And yes, we're going to lose some of our own money doing that, but that's what's best for the pet. And the owner will come back to us. You know, it's not, they're not going to keep them forever. <laughs> so it, it, I wish that I, 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 I hope that I can break down that a little bit more and have more of a, a cohesive relationship in the industry with other practices and them learning that they can rely on each other. You know, if, if I need, and I have one clinic down the road, if I run out of stuff or they run out of stuff, we call each other and we'll exchange things and, 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 it's helpful to have those resources and not burn all your bridges, you know, just because you want to be stingy with your little bubble you have, you know? Um, But that's a misconception on, in a lot of different industries. I feel like that, that we can help each other. And if we all do this together, we can raise the bar and have better, better service all the way around, you know, and preserve private practices that way and make corporate medicine, high standard as well,
1: so. Yeah, you know, I think for me in, in all cases, you know, you, like you talk, like listening to you talk talk about it, it's because I can hear like in, in your tone and the way you talk about this referral idea, um, just like Debbie Boone, another great, another great woman. I love Debbie lives, Boone. Yeah. Um,
0: <laughs> she's one of my, she's one of my superstars that I call on all the time when I need help. with something.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. me too. At least I know I'm not, now I'm not the only one who's bugging her. So that's great. No, no, she,
0: And I always, I'm yeah. like, I'm so sorry. I'm emailing you again, but she yeah. always, she always puts a lot of thought into her responses and she, exactly. she's wonderful. She's, she's like, she's a little idol of mine in the CVPM world. Yeah, Yeah,
1: exactly. But she, you know, she had, she had told me the same thing. You know, she was like, when I was a practice manager, I felt confident if we couldn't get somebody in, I felt confident in referring them to another practice because I felt confident in what we were going to do. And I knew that our customers were going to say, you know what, Debbie's really looking out for my best interest. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm going to go get this quick, whatever appointment, whatever. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe just for a refill for an you know, a checkup for seeing a refill a prescription or whatever, um, but they're going to come back to me mm-hmm. because they know that I always have their best interests at heart. And what we mm-hmm. and what we have done and what we've built and the reason that we've attracted them here in the first place, we really stand behind. And looking back, you know, hindsight is always twenty twenty. And so, looking at my own personal experiences again in those other businesses that I was involved in, like the business owners, never. They they are not confident in the product and the service that they they are offering, and I they at the end of the day they don't really believe in it. And then what is interesting is because you also mentioned earlier that you know when it comes to staff it's really kind of a top down approach. Mm-hmm. And again, because hindsight is twenty twenty, and it's easier to look when you're removed from the situation, but to look back and just see all the staffing problems at those at those organizations, and sometimes the high turnover and a lot of the positions that we, you know, internally we can never figure out. And even myself, cause you know, I'm there in the in the company, in the organization with the blinders mm-hmm. on, I don't get it. But then when I look out, I'm like, it all comes back to this this scarcity mindset. And the, and the fact yeah. that we really don't believe in what we're doing mm-hmm. and the owner is so terrified of competition because we don't believe in the product that we're offering, right? Mm-hmm. And And then that mindset trickles throughout the entire organization mm-hmm. and so when we, you when you talk about implementing ideas or why aren't people following certain procedures it's it's like dude because you don't believe in it right and whether you can say all day that you do and you've spent all this money but at the end of the day it's because you don't believe in it mm-hmm. and and people you know like animals like right they can mm-hmm. read us without us actually talking to them and, and and instinctually it's like we're almost like like getting kind of back to our animal instincts and we can mm-hmm. read these signals in the in, in the lack of confidence that comes down from ownership and sort of like, well, we, they don't really believe in it. Even right. though they're saying that, I know inter- intrinsically that they don't and it leads to all these problems. Mm-hmm. So I would love for you to elaborate a little bit more on this idea of oh, yeah. this top-down approach and what you've seen in, in situations like that.
0: Oh, sure. Um, I think you have to have that buy-in 100%. And I also see veterinarians or owners or managers, they'll, they'll create a mission statement or a vision statement and they leave it the same for 25, 30 years. I feel like if you have to have buy-in with your whole team, I had a whole staff training session where I had everybody write down their whys of why they were here, like specifically, personally, why, why are you here? And then we found common ground and we built a mission statement, vision statement off that. So if you have that buy-in and everybody believes in why we're here that builds that confidence and then you don't have so much of of that fear of threat in the industry and I I feel like that builds your culture from there. So if you have if you don't have a good mission or vision statement, you don't have buy-in from your staff, you don't have the confidence of your owner, yeah, you're going to have really high turnover and people that aren't confident in what you do or i've even seen technicians that will refer clients somewhere else because they know they're not going to get good care where they're working and that's it's sad that that that's how that goes um but it has to it has to build from that why what, why are you here why are you doing what you do you know why just think of it simply like that and then build off of it from there And I've told other practices too, it's like, don't be afraid to change your mission statement. Like this isn't something that's etched in stone. Like you can change it to fit what you're doing now, or you can change it to be what you want it to be because you want to change your culture and you're taking steps to change your culture. So it's it's always going to be that top down. If you don't have the top leaders on board and the owners on board, then it's not going to work very well. Because um, they're like, oh, if, well, if they don't care about it, then why should I care about it? You know. Um, but I, I feel like it's it's so important to have everybody's perspective and everybody's why to build that, rather than just pushing it on people. And they do that a lot. They'll create something and just say, okay, this is you have to memorize this statement. This is our our mission statement, and this is what you're gonna live by. But just memorize it, and you don't have a say in it. And it should be open ended. It should be participation from everybody because that's where you get that job enrichment. That's where you get satisfaction of, of what you do and why you do it. Um, even practices I've been at that your, your worth was basically calculated by, by the dollar amount or how many patients you saw that day. You know, how many did you get in and out quickly? They would time how, how long you're in exam rooms. I was like, it shouldn't be about that at all either. You know, it should be about your patient care. Yeah, it might take 15 extra minutes to explain to this client more thoroughly how to give this medication at home, but then they're going to be more successful. The pet's going to be healthier and they're going to come back to you, you know? So it's, it's very much a top down, but I feel like more people should be open to change and open to revamping things and having input from all the parties involved. Even your your kennel staff, you know, it's everybody. Why are you here? What makes you happy? Why do you show up to work? You know, and that, that creates a different culture and a different atmosphere just right out of the gate with that, that one thing.
1: Yeah. Um, and, you know, sometimes I think it's as simple as, you know, as I listen to you talk about this idea of like, well, here's this, you know, mission statement, you know, buy into it mm-hmm. and... And then I was in a situation where I was like, "Why? Why does it feel like nobody's really, um, you know, why aren't why aren't the, why isn't the staff buying into this? You know, like uh, we did have you know upper level management work on the on this, and we came to this consensus, and and yeah, but why is nobody buying in on it? And for the longest time, I was always trying to work on ideas of like how to get people more engaged with it. Okay, well, maybe it's because we're presenting it wrong, and there isn't an active engagement." But then I realized, and having been in in personal situations where I realized, again, is it was as like we had these values, but again, the top down didn't believe in them. Right. And all of those values went out the window whenever it suited ownership, right? Mm-hmm. Or whenever it suited upper management. And that resonates down. So that mm-hmm. speaks louder than anything. Game or any any way I could get people to be more involved and in to really think about these core values is that how they are actually being trickled down and expressed through the day-to-day lives of the people that are in the positions that are above, you know, mm-hmm. the, the people that are in, in the positions of leadership. And the other thing that I also saw a lot, that I've seen a lot, is this idea of just lack of listening. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing- And understanding. I think the, mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. I think the greatest- uh, it never really dawned on me until early on in my professional career. I, I read a book by Richard Branson and he was talking about this guy who, you know, he got all these meetings and how he hired his executives is whenever somebody actually brought pen and paper to a meeting. And it's so like, you know, now it's still a habit of mine. Like I still use it today. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and he's like, because these people are actively listening and they're actively taking notes. And he's like, a lot of times, they wouldn't be the biggest participants in the room because they're just listening and try to really understand what people are saying. Mm -hmm. And what I've seen so many times from leadership is just a lack of listening. I can't tell you Mm -hmm. how many times I've been in like a management role and I've had, you know, texts or people underneath me come to me and say like, why are we doing this? Like, Mm -hmm. I don't get it. Like these are things that I know and I just want to kind of be told where I'm actually missing my step. What Mm -hmm. am I doing wrong? but it was like ownership had created this story in their mind. And so they're just kind of, okay, this is what's going on. This is how we're going to fix it
0: mm-hmm. rather
1: than talking and actually listening mm-hmm. to the staff to understand what's really going on.
0: Definitely. And I, 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 think about little, little things that little situations. And this is on topic, but it'll sound off topic at the beginning, but I had a, a vet assistant one time that I was watching her. We were training on wrapping packs or she was showing me how they like to wrap packs there. I think I was new there. The surgical packs. And she's like, oh, you just do this and you throw a lot of gauze in there. And I was like, well, wait, like you're supposed to count 20 gauze. She's like, oh, they've told me that, but I don't know why like that even matters. So She was uneducated on why there needed to be 20 gauze. And I remember stopping her. I was the new kid, you know, but I stopped her. I was like, no, they have 20 in case they're in an abdomen and they put the gauze in there and then they count their gauze before they sew the pet back up. You know, you got to count your gauze, make sure you have all your stuff there. Like, that's why there's always 20. There's exactly 20 gauze. And she's like, oh, well, nobody's ever explained it to me. Now I know why there has to be 20 gauze. So I think that... Things like that, as simple as that can seem, but as big of an issue as it could have been, (laughs) you know, not having those, having 25 gauze and not 20 gauze, um, little things like that, just understanding the perspective. I spend a lot of time with my team explaining to them or getting their input. A lot of the decisions that I make aren't just executive decisions, I want input from the team. Sometimes they are executive decisions, and in those cases, I take time to explain why it's important. Because otherwise, you won't get buy-in at all. You know, because if you're just told, if you just tell them they have to do this, and they don't explain the why, they're not going to see it as important at all. So I, I I think about little little times in my career where that has popped up, um, but it it comes back to communicating effectively and knowing how to communicate with people and help them understand things,
1: you know? Yeah, and you know, thinking about it, there's so many times where now I feel so bad. Um, Again, it was a learning experience and I learned a lot from it, but a lot of times I feel really bad because there were technicians that were under me that, you know, in the technical space, especially in the IT world, a lot of times the field technicians it's a really tough job. And a lot of them aren't very customer service, customer service centric, right? And Mm -hmm. that's the biggest complaint is like, they're just not very, they're kind of rude. And it seems like they're talking down to me. And um, I've had a number of technicians where, you know, they were getting bad customer reviews and rather than coming to them and saying, well, explain to me the situation why do you think the customers ups- you know why do you mm-hmm. think they had a bad experience with that or what was you know really listening to them i just went to him i'm like dude you got to get your shit together mm-hmm. you know what i mean like you can't just go in there and act like you know everything and then be upset that they don't and you know just and then just kind of like essentially just this kind of aggressive like dude just get your shit together right You're like right. focus on customer service and at the end of the day man like how many times did my decision in how i then looked at that person and then reported that up the chain which eventually made them lose their job how many times could i have approached that differently which maybe would have allowed that person to be successful and not kind of put them in a the position of you know losing their job and having, having to move on and you know I, I to kind of bring it back to event that example it's like sometimes with you know animals and their behavior sometimes it's not the animal's fault it's it's the owner's fault right that these Mm -hmm. animals have these bad behaviors and sometimes not to say that people are animals but i think it's just like a leadership approach a lot of times it's a leadership problem not necessarily an an employee problem and not to say that there aren't times where it's just somebody's just not the right fit and you got to figure out how to make that work but yeah there's a lot of times i do feel some personally i feel regret like i should have approached that totally differently um But I guess now moving forward, you know, within within my own organization, you know, I I have these goalposts, right? And it's like everything with anybody that is going to work for me or with me in this organization knows that, you know, if it doesn't help to keep, A, to help inform the veterinarian of the value of their data and it doesn't help Mm -hmm. them protect it in some way, it doesn't matter what else is going on. Those are the goalposts. So every decision mm-hmm. is made off that, regardless if it makes or makes or loses the company money, that is our goalpost. that's how we make decisions. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it's definitely has been a big learning curve for me. And I think I'm gonna have a lot more problems, you know, down the road that I'm gonna have to learn from, I'm probably gonna feel bad from, but
0: uh, well, that's how we it learn. sucks sometimes
1: as people are involved, yeah. yeah.
0: But as long as we adapt and, and evolve it and even on a psychology standpoint, each person's different on how, how to approach them more effectively. And I've done exercises with the team where they've had to do these surveys to figure out, you know, even personality type surveys to figure out, do you, are you a very direct person? Do you like somebody just to tell you what you did wrong? Or do you want it open-ended? Do you want to be more in control of learning from your mistakes? like? And it, it's, it's very much um, filling out how how people take different things and learning how to approach them differently to get through to them. Because, you know, if you don't get through to them, not, like you said, nothing's going to happen. Nothing's going to change if you don't get through to them. And it takes different approaches for different people. And that, that's my psychology brain that kicks up. But it's like you have to figure out where they are and doing so I notice when I come in if somebody's a little off and then I can pull them aside and be like are you okay today you know and just having that touch base and having having that um I guess open door policy as as management to be like if you need to come talk to me I can try to help where I can even if it's just to listen you know and they appreciate that but that gives me more insight as well on what can I do to be more effective as a leader as a leader and a manager are two different things. And, and one thing that's always stuck out in my head too, or or from school was that people don't leave organizations. They leave bad management when you lose team or a staff member or have turnover, they, they lose the management, you know, they leave because of management, not the organization itself or the organization's values. So it, it all comes from there. So it's, it's always kind of a walking a tightrope, you know, trying to get different personalities to work with each other and the clinic that I'm at currently, like if, as, as we've grown and gotten bigger, I was the only full timer for two years and we've been here seven now and I have 16 employees now. Um, But just as we've gotten bigger, the different, you know, different obstacles I've come across or things that I've done that, that I now know that I can do better, you know, and I, I do better with new hires because I, I fell off, you know, on the first few hires learning it this way. So as long as for me, I, I don't really have regret on a lot of things. It's just, how can I do better every day? Let's say, like how, how can I be better and do better every day? How can I help the team, be able to be cohesive and provide the best quality medicine they can. you have to have people in that mind frame? If they come in all distraught about something else, they're not going to be focusing on their patient. So it's getting people honed in on that and okay, we're at work now. You know, we got to focus on this, but if you need to come talk to me just to get it, get it out, then I'm here, you know, And just learning how to approach different people and some people want me to go up to them and be like hey you screwed that up like why did you do it that way and then other people would get really offended if i did that so i have to come at them differently so it's learning those nuances as well um, with with different people and then the hardest part with with human resource management is just getting everyone to their personalities to at least somewhat <laughs> work together you know like even if you don't like each other you can respect each other you could communicate still and you can still get the job done but there needs to be that communication or you'll have animosity grow and a big bomb explode but um but yes definitely I, there's been a lot of things that I've taken and, and learned from and even as a manager I've whenever I was in school and I wasn't managing yet, I was taking the good and the bad from all the people that had ever been my manager. Like I I wanted to be this type of manager and I knew that that didn't work before or how I saw it. So I always try to think about how my team, how I would see it in their shoes because I've been in their shoes. And how would I feel about this decision? So I could I could take that as well. and I, I think it's helpful that I've been in different settings and different levels in a hospital to appreciate that. Um, but yes, definitely, but the the management of the people is always the hardest.
1: Yeah. And you know one thing, you know, because you talk you're you're really you're really honing in on this idea that people are complicated, right? And we have to talk to people in different ways, and mm-hmm. we really have to understand the people problems again right like hence the people of veterinary medicine because people are very unique and everybody has a unique story and that's kind of the reason behind this project and 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 then to kind of single out the vet space individually just because i love the industry so much but what you know and this is kind of a topic for another day but you know a lot of people i had a facebook account for a long time and aside from a lot of the data security issues that really started to kind of scare me and one of the reasons I had to leave that I decided to to delete my own Facebook account um, was also that I started to see this idea that, you know, you talked about the importance and this is something that I, I completely agree with and I feel that we're losing as a society is the, the ability to be able to have tough conversations. Um, so kind of to tie this back to Facebook, what I started to see is that everybody started, everybody just is now starting, especially with the help of technology. And one of the things that kind of scares me being a technology professional is that now we're creating these little silos that we live in online. And anybody that's not in our silo is not considered a person with a bad idea that maybe we need to hash those ideas you know they're good people they just have bad ideas it's now we've created these silos that they're bad people with bad Mm -hmm. ideas and that's really scary and i think 2020 regardless of what side of the political spectrum you're on has it has become more clear today that we now live in these silos and we're not even allowed to have conversations with people especially with differencing political opinions, because they are now bad people with bad ideas, Mm -hmm. not good people with bad ideas that we want to try to understand and uh, hash those ideas Mm -hmm. out and then still be able to walk away as friends. And um, yeah, and that was another reason I had to separate myself from it.
0: Avoidance of conflict. I find that to be one of the biggest struggles, that accountability um, being the biggest struggles of a of a team. Um, But even like you were talking about on on Facebook, like having people behind keyboards where you're not sitting face to face so you can get as heated and get angry and troll people. And you can do these things that take up a lot more energy than you probably should be spending on it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's like, do you really have enough energy to just follow this person all day and comment on their posts? But I think if more people can, be more open-minded, learn how to communicate more effectively because the social social media market in general has taken away a lot of our communication and how we can effectively communicate with one another. And if we can just put it all down and have a conversation, even if it's a hard one and not avoid conflict, we can understand the other one's perspective a little bit better. We still might not agree on it, but we can understand it better. And I think um, with social media we've lost a lot of that which is sad I've, I've always said social media i feel like social media is the downfall of society but it, <laughs>
1: it is in a lot of ways yeah and there's is. a lot of people that are working on you know a lot of like you know psychologists and and people in that realm that are that are doing some serious work that like we got to change something because it's mm-hmm. kind of destroying society yeah
0: it is it is and you have um, more segregation of people you have hate coming out that mm-hmm. you never would have thought would come out. I was like what year are we actually in like I don't understand yeah. what is what's happening
1: yeah
0: but, but it's you know it's I don't know I guess I have a little hippie perspective I just I want it to all be like we have fun and talk and communicate and yeah you know there's flowers um but it's not that way anymore but it has to I try to coach the team to and that's another thing of figuring out the different perspectives and how people like to be approached is how they handle conflict. I had a whole like two-hour staff meeting on just how do you handle conflict. Um, sometimes it's challenging my the owner of the practice absolutely hates conflict and avoids it and runs away from it so I'm always like she I told her it's she she called me one night upset with one of the team members and she told me what they did. And she's like, next time I'm going to tell them to go tell you what they said. And I was like, so that's the equivalent of wait until your father gets home. like, (laughs) You know, I was like, no, you should be able to call that out when it happens and that's holding them accountable. Like we have to, we have to hold each other accountable. It's not just me standing here, holding people accountable. It has to be everybody involved in it. Um, But yes, I, I, I encourage communication because that, to me, is the most important thing because if if you don't have effective communication, that's when everything else breaks down. And especially yeah. with medicine, with so many moving parts, you have to communicate to have proper patient care. Um, so it's yeah, it's it's a it's a tough one to to get sometimes, especially when there's personality conflicts. But, yeah.
1: but yes, definitely. I think yeah, I think it's you know. As we start to come to the end here, I think it's it's a conversation I feel that we really could have for days, and I think mm-hmm. if anything, it makes me realize just the importance because it also makes me think about personal examples where I had a a friend and a colleague that I really considered a close friend and a confidant, and um, a lot of people who listen to the podcast know like I'm a theo- a bit of a theology nerd, and um, you know he had a difference in, in in theological opinions, and so, but for me. I don't care. Like at the end of the day, I don't care what your theological opinion is. But for me, I love to hash out the details mm-hmm. and the exactly. and the things that are that are hard for us to talk about because these are some of life's bigger questions, right? Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, like if you don't know the answer, I'm okay with that. Or if you can or if you just say, you know what, I just don't agree with you and that, that opinion. I'm I'm comfortable with that and I'm like, mm-hmm. Okay, cool, you know, like let's go have a beer or whatever now, like, you know, but I love I love to hash these things out. And so I thought and it's interesting because, you know, a lot of times you think you can be in that position to have tough conversations with people. And so, you know, we were talking about these kind of things. And then it turns out that he was like insanely offended. And I'm like, dude, you've known me forever. Like mm-hmm. and then he like he spun it back at me. and He's like, what if I asked you this? And I was like, I would love it if you asked me that. Like, yeah. I would love it. I would love to tell you my opinion and we all love to talk about ourselves, but you know, it's like, I would love to tell you my opinion. And if you have evidence to, that disagrees with my opinion, I would love to hear it. Exactly. You
0: know? And I will change my opinion if,
1: yeah,
0: you know, and, and I think that that's also a misconception with conflict is, you know, if you can bring evidence to the table, I will 100% change what I'm doing exactly. and as a, as a leader, you have to adapt constantly because things change constantly, and what worked a year ago is probably not going to work now because everything just moves so quickly. Yeah. But I love when people have other ideas or a different way of looking at something, so I can think about it and see if it's you know if I need to change my standpoint. But I I I definitely I enjoy that back and forth as well. I'm yeah. I'm one of those those people
1: too <laughs> so. well and i think you know and, and to reiterate that point i think the sometimes the greatest thing that i have ever learned in my career is when to simply be like you know what you're right mm-hmm. i was wrong about that
0: exactly
1: like just that like you it is it is a, and it the, and now it's become so natural like it, at the mm-hmm. in the beginning it's really hard right you to admit to somebody that you're wrong is not it's mm-hmm. not like a natural act but nowadays it's just become like when I realize I'm like, Oh yeah, you know what? You're right. I was wrong. Mm-hmm. I was wrong about that. But to see the look in somebody's eyes, they're like, they don't know what to think. Mm-hmm. Right. Sometimes they're astonished. They're like, and they don't know what to say. And they just look at you This and this is a podcast. So i have to keep talking because people can't see my facial expressions, yeah. but <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just like this blank stare and they're like, well, oh, I really didn't expect that. But they uh, appreciate it too. Yes, and then you yeah. have
0: that. I mean, I, I fully admit to any of my, my faults that have happened as a manager, if I have a team member that comes up and tells me something and I know that I'm wrong, I will definitely be like, you know, yeah, I I should have done that differently. And thank you for pointing it out to me because I going forward, I'm not going to do that again. You know, I, I, I very much, I appreciate that because that's the only way for us to grow. I mean, that's how we learn and grow is, is by making mistakes or learning different perspectives or, you know, finding new research or just all of these things that make us human beings and make us grow. Um, I've always been open to that. And I, it, like you said, it, it was, it's hard at the beginning to be like, okay, I'm the leader. I'm supposed to always have the answer, but I don't have the answer right now. Yeah, and, and I'm okay with telling them that if I have somebody come to me with something, I'm like, I, that's a good, I that's a, a Good catch, and I will try to find an answer for you. <laughs> like, but I don't have yeah. one right now.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and I think that helps too with their confidence and management. Just being able to have that open conversation and that open conflict, because if somebody has a better way of doing it, I mean, in 15 years, I still every day learn something new in this industry because it's so large and just there's so much involved. So. And I, I love it. Every day I get to learn something new. I get to learn a new weird word or, you know, new something. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly, yeah.
0: So, and sometimes, because the doctors, they are they were both valedictorians, like the, the two doctors I have. So, they're walking encyclopedias. And sometimes they'll say something. I'm like, wait, do it again. Do it one more time. <laughs> yeah. My new favorites were Borgamous, So.
1: Oh, <laughs> like, nice. That's awesome. That was a yeah. good one. I, I got like no that. idea. <laughs> you, I have no idea what you're you're speaking latin at that that's point. that's yeah, the yeah.
0: stomach noises that oh, whenever your stomach's oh, upset and it makes yeah. noise that's yeah. borgamous
1: oh interesting ah. i have dog it's going through that right now actually yeah. so now i know that's the actual so term great. that's actually fascinating yeah
0: yeah I, I i don't know i just i like weird stuff yeah. like that and i'm like wait say it one more time let me make sure i get it right yeah. <laughs> you know but,
1: yeah. yeah but i think yeah i mean as a uh, before we wrap this up and, and allow you sure. to kind of talk about what where people can find you and learn more about you, you know, I think you you say it greatly. And I think, again, not that this is a political podcast, but I think, you know, when was the last time in this country we ever saw a, politi- a political leader, regardless of what you're, put. again, I'm not telling you to choose a political side here, just admit and say that they were wrong about something, right? Mm-hmm. And think about the impact that that would have on our culture and our society um, if, if like the leader of our of the the free world, the United States, could stand mm-hmm. up on a podium and be like, you know what? We thought this was the right thing, but based on new evidence, we realized that we're wrong. Mm-hmm. And it just seems that like, you know, we're always in this position to double down on things that were even where we're wrong. But now we're gonna double down on it and prove why we are right about that rather than just mm-hmm. saying we were wrong. And I think you make a great point that probably the best thing that we can do as leaders in our smaller organizations around people is is probably just the power of uh, you know of admitting that you were wrong about something and, yeah. and how that really embodies and empowers your staff to actually feel comfortable and as Josh you know, says you know gives them the psychological safety to come to you. Um,
0: Definitely. And not just so that, ditching an idea either. Like maybe yep. it just needs to be amended and and that has happened we've seen a lot in in politics it's just even though a one idea that we tried didn't work 100% or isn't completely foolproof that doesn't mean we can't expand on that but instead it's either we have to put all of our effort into proving that it's perfect or yep. we're going to ditch it completely because it was complete failure like no exactly. maybe it was the right track but we just have to change it some we have to exactly. build on it so yes
1: exactly yeah, yeah. well and then that's the, I think that's the other idea too That a big takeaway is that people aren't perfect But yet we, but yet for some reason, we as people expect that people in leadership positions are perfect, right? Mm -hmm. And I think if we can start to break those barriers down and say, and realize, no, we're all people together. I just have to be in a different position than you um, Mm -hmm. because of this level of expertise or whatever, rather than, um, yeah. And then I think that's where it creates more problems because we expect our leaders to be perfect, but people Mm -hmm. aren't perfect. So, with that being said, um, where can people find out more about you? Anything that the the advertisement soapbox is yours. This is completely sh- shameless self promotion. No okay. shame. Tell everybody okay. anything you want. To, they, okay. they should. Okay, awesome.
0: Um, well, I do have a website. Um, I'm trying to get original content because it's a little generic right now. But it's veterinarypracticehealth.com. Um, it outlines a little bit more of what I do. I can work with specific projects or I can do, if it's a more um, more consecutive, like if there's a lot of issues to work on, then I could design a contract for that or speaking engagements. Like I'm pretty open to whatever somebody needs to help grow their business and just help them understand the business side of veterinary medicine instead of just flying by the seat of their pants, which is typically what happens, or they're trying to triage something constantly instead of thinking forward on how to make this business better. Um, but it's veterinarypracticehelp.com. I do have an email as well. That's attached to that, um, website. It is Jamie J A M I E camp C A M P dot, there's two dots, <laughs> dot CVPM at gmail.com. Um, and you can reach me those ways as well. Um, my phone is 615-809-4094. Um, but yes, I'm I'm completely open to helping with various projects. If it's, you know, single doctor practices, new startup, you know, trying to triage, a practice I, I worked with one veterinarian that was buying a practice that was it was scary <laughs> you know on everything they were taking on and they're trying to change everything about it now so it's it's interesting to see the different areas but um yeah I'm open for I've done staff training on different topics um really anything on the business end of veterinary medicine, if it's HR or finance or inventory management protocols, DEA reporting, OSHA, whatever, whatever somebody needs, I, I can do that. And if I, if it's a place I'm not confident with, I will find somebody to help them. (laughs) So
1: awesome.
0: yeah, yeah. So that's, that's me. It's veterinary practice consulting is the name of my, my business.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you, Jamie. It truly was an honor. I feel like we could have kept we really getting in the meat of things. We could have kept talking forever, but yeah, it really was an honor. Thank you for taking time out of your busy day to chat with me. And yeah, if there's anything I can do to return the favor, please don't hesitate to ask.
0: Oh, awesome. Well, thank you for inviting me. I've I've enjoyed it a lot. I, I, I feel like more, we need to do more things like this in the world. Yeah, that's right. Yeah,
1: Yeah, definitely. Awesome. Well, thank you, Jamie. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you. Bye.